Hi, you're now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. We're happy to bring you sermons like this one every week. You can find other sermons at our site at harvest-community.org. So without further ado, here's our speaker. Our church is part of a network called Thrive. Uh, It's a smaller network of churches, and uh, this past week, the Thrive Pastors went away for a conference, so we're doing a pulpit swap today. So Pastor Dave is at our sister church, Emmanuel Community Church, and his younger brother, Dr. Steve, uh, is here this morning to to give this sermon. And if, if you've heard Dr. Steve preach before, you know God's given him a great mind and intellect, and ability to teach uh, God's Word. But one of the things I really appreciate about him is just his uh, focus on the heart. And he really wants to see God change people's hearts. I really respect this man. I really believe God's going to use him this morning. He's an amazing cook that we experienced this past week. And I just want to pray for him as he brings uh, God's Word to us this morning. God, we just want to invite you to speak to us this morning, uh, that your word would come alive uh, to your people. Uh, We thank you for Dr. Steve and just his faithfulness to you. What an amazing servant, how he lays down his life to follow Jesus and to serve the church. And we pray this morning, God, that you would just use him as your instrument to speak your word, and that our our ears and our hearts would be open to you, and that your Holy Spirit would work among us. So we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Can we welcome Dr. Steve? Morning, everyone. It's it's really great to be in worship with you this morning. Um, I don't think I've had a chance to speak here at Harvest since your retreat that I spoke at, I think it was, was that last year? Two years ago? Two years? Okay, it's been a while, huh? Um, as Pastor Jerry just shared, uh, we're just coming off of a week in Louisville, and uh, it was really an amazing time. You can see a picture there of the pastors, and um, we attended this conference called Together for the Gospel. It was a, quite an awesome thing to gather at this arena with uh, 12,000 other pastors, and uh, pastors' wives, and to just uh, worship, hear the word of God. And in addition to being in that conference, we had a lot of downtime to just sort of spend time together. And uh, it just feels like so much of the network activity has centered around, you know, um, just planning meetings and putting events together. And so this just gave an opportunity for all the Thrive pastors to just spend some time together and get to pray together, get to know one another, goof off. Um, yeah, there's so many goofy things that happened that week that, like we said, like whatever happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Kind of feel that way about that week, you know, is we really sort of put down our guard and got a chance to sort of be ourselves a little bit more authentically. Uh, and so it was just a, a really, I think, enriching and great week for us. Um, as I preach before you this morning, I was kind of wrestling with what is the topic that I would speak on. And I felt convicted to talk about this idea of hospitality as, a, as an essential ministry in the church that's so vital to, um, 
to fulfilling what God wills for his church. And so would you bow with me in a word of prayer as we take a look at this topic of hospitality. God, we come before you. Uh, This body, this community bears your name. And so we ask you that you would do your ministry that only you can do in our hearts. To not only communicate to us instructions, commands, but to let the Spirit's work open up our hearts to the change, the transformation that is necessary for us to live the life that you have called us to. And so open our hearts with a humility and a teachability at this time to receive what you want to give to us. For we pray these things as your body in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to begin with this simple yet I think um, provocative question. You know, what is Harvest Community Church? I mean, if you were sort of pressed to say, at the essence, at its very essence, what does harvest represent? What, what is at the core? What is at the center of it all? And it's, I suspect that each one of you might kind of answer it differently. I think for some, you would say, well, at its very essence is a mission, a vision. You know, something that we're really living for that around which we're rallying, you know. I think others of you may really equate harvest with an event, this service that you're a part of right now. So when you think harvest, you think about being here at the Hoffman Estates High School cafeteria at 10 a.m. every morning. It's basically an event weekly that you come to and say, uh, that is harvest in a nutshell. But what I would um, offer to you is maybe the way that God would see it is that at its very essence, Harvest is a community, and a supernatural community at that. Meaning, um, what is the essential defining aspect of Harvest Community Church is a group of people that God has supernaturally brought together to experience life and faith together as one body. And as you journey together like that, the vision and the mission may change and may adopt. The, the Sunday service, the event of harvest, may look very different as the years evolve. But the community would really always be there. And in light of that, I want to ask you, what should that community look like? What is God's design for harvest? His intention for you? And what are the hallmarks that are to define this community that bears the name of Christ? Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10 through 11, speaking of the church, his intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. What these verses tell us is that the most powerful display of God's wisdom in the world today is the church of Jesus Christ. In other words, the church demonstrates God's clearest eternal purpose for the world to view as a witness. And so if you want to know what God is trying to accomplish in our world today, what Paul would say is, Look at the church, because that's where you will see it. 
and understand it. I think there's something very powerful and moving hearing about the testimonies of individual Christians whose lives have been flipped upside down as they came to faith because of what God has done in our lives. There's something incredibly moving and powerful about individual testimonies. But what Paul would argue is these individual stories don't give us the full picture of what God is about. It's not until all those individual testimonies gather together to become a community that you actually see the full picture of what God is trying to do in our world, what God is doing in our world. In other words, it's not until we gather together and interact with each other and are working together that you understand, oh, this is what God is doing. This is what he is accomplishing. And so I'm going to pivot toward this idea of hospitality as being very critical to that. But that's about what we do. Before we get there, I want to still explore a little further about what God has done because I think that always has to be the starting point. One of the central passages that helps us understand what God intended for the church is in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14 to 22. It says, For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one, And has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law with his commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two. Thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you too are being built together, to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Now, there's so much there that I could unpack, but I just want to focus on a few key things that the Apostle Paul says here about the church. He starts off by saying that through the cross of Jesus Christ, he has taken down the biggest barrier, that is the barrier that existed between us and God, the barrier of sin. He has reconciled us to God by sending his son Jesus to die on the cross. But then Paul says there is another wall of hostility that was torn down by the cross. And that's the wall of hostility that doesn't only exist between us and God, but among one another. Because there also are walls there as well. And he says that on the cross, God destroyed those walls as well. And the question is, how did this happen? Well, it happened because he gave us peace with God so that now in that peace with God, we have an entirely new identity in Christ that brings us together, as he says, as one new humanity, one single group of people. And that's why Paul could say to the Galatians in Galatians 3, 28 to 29, there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. 
In other words, all of these ways that we try to divide us, it says that Christ overcame all of that to bring us together as one family, one group of people to worship one God. And so he says, look at the church, and what you will see in that church is a group of people that come from so many different backgrounds and stories, and yet God has brought them into a single community. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1 through 3, says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. What Paul is saying is, it's not your job to create the unity in the church. It's saying that God has done that work already through Jesus. But we can chip away at it by the flesh, if we allow that to dominate in our community. Saying, God is the one that establishes unity through his work. And what he says is, maintain that unity that the Spirit has begun among you by the conduct with which you conduct yourselves and the way that you treat one another and live together in this community to either build up what God has begun or to tear it down. And resist the work of God in your midst. As I was reflecting on this, I, I had to really come to some places of honesty in my own heart. When I thought about this idea of walls of hostility that I see built up between myself and others. And I, I did this kind of thought experiment. And I thought, okay, let me just picture a middle-aged Asian man with a college education who plays tennis, and enjoys cooking, loves photography, but who's a non-Christian. And then I thought about a white truck driver from Mississippi who never finished high school, but who loves the Lord. And I thought in my own heart, who would I feel a natural affinity toward between these two men? And I had to be honest with myself. I think in a lot of ways, I think I might feel more affinity toward the Asian guy. And that's saying something devastating, isn't it? Because the gospel tells me that what I share in common with this man so greatly supersedes anything I have in common with this man that in truth I had to look at this man and say, brother, and this guy is an alien, a stranger, a foreigner to me. If you don't have this perspective of yourself and other believers, then I think I would argue God needs to do a work in your heart to change the way you see fellow believers in Christ regardless of their education level or life stage or economic status or their ethnicity, the color of their skin. James Dunlop says, being a Christian is more fundamental to your identity than your family, your ethnicity, your profession, your nationality, your sexuality, your personality, or any other way this world defines identity. And so the unity you share with every Christian supersedes every other bond. That means that wherever gospel people exist, Diversity should as well. Diversity grows naturally 
from the gospel. Amen? Way that we can express it is like this. In God's community, it is characterized by what we could call supernatural breadth. Supernatural breadth. In other words, the people that are brought together are brought together from all different circles of life into one community so that when somebody looks at a church, there shouldn't be this immediate sense of, oh yeah, I get that. (laughs) I understand why they're together. There should be something that says, I don't get this room. (laughs) It looks really goofy to me. I don't know why these particular people are hanging out together until you hear the faith stories. It also ought to be marked by what we could say is supernatural depth. In other words, the relationships we experience with one another ought to go so much deeper than a social club. It ought to resemble the kind of commitments we see in families, the depth to which we love one another. Again, James Dunlop says this, In gospel-revealing community, many relationships would never exist before the truth and power of the gospel, either because of the depth of the care for each other or because two people in relationship have little in common but Christ. When Christians unite around something other than the gospel, they create community that would likely exist even if God didn't. As a modern-day Tower of Babel, that community, that community glorifies their strength instead of God's. While recognizing our tendency toward similarity, we should aspire toward community where similarity, similarity isn't necessary. Where no strand of similarity in the congregation explains the whole congregation. That kind of community defies naturalistic explanations. I struggle with that sometimes. When we talk about building community in the church, we look to everything other than the gospel. So we say, well, what do our people like to do? So we say, oh, okay, they like to watch Bears games. So let's try to get one of our leaders to invite a bunch of people to watch the Bears game together. So we get all the Bears fans together, you know? And there's a bunch of women that like uh, crocheting and knitting. So let's start a knitting club, you know? And then, you know, whatever. Let's start a professional organization for all the people that are in business. I'm not necessarily faulting initiatives like that. But the truth is the world could do that too, couldn't they? There's nothing supernatural about that. The naturalistic affinities that just bring us together. The church is so much more than that. It ought to be you going to your community group and every time you go and sit around that living room of your church, fellow church member, you go, I don't really get this, you know? This is so odd. Because if Christ wasn't here with us, I would never be your friend, you know? I mean, you are at such a different life stage. Even when you share in Bible study, I don't always get what you're sharing. Because, you know, I think sometimes your insights are weird, you know? And it's just, but somehow, here we are. Because Christ has brought us together. Christ is what bonds us. There has to be something supernatural about the community of the church that the world cannot explain. You know, as I was thinking about this idea of tearing down walls of hostility, I thought about the food laws in the Old Testament. When God gave the law to Moses, included in it, there were these extensive instructions about what the Jews could and could not eat. And I think almost all of us know that the Jews could not eat pork. They could not eat pigs. 
was an unclean animal. But the list that they were forbidden to eat, these so-called unclean animals, was actually rather extensive. It includes not only pigs, but camels, hares, mice, ferrets, eagles, bats, lizards, frogs, owls, snares, uh, snails, tortoises. And there's been a lot of speculation as to why God did this. Some speculate that it was health reasons. And there's a, a Christian doctor who's wrote a whole book on this to say as he looked at these unclean animals, there were higher incidents of parasites in them, and so God was protecting them from worms and stuff like that. Listen, the reason why God created these laws is to create a separation between his people and the Gentile nations. Simple as that. He says, you are going to be my distinct people, and one of the best and easiest ways to accomplish that is to define what is food and what is non-food. Because it is very hard to have fellowship with somebody if you can't share a meal and can't eat the same things together. I still remember the day when one of my schoolmates during my primary school years, my classmates, came up to me in front of a bunch of other kids He must have seen it on the news or heard it from his parents. And he just, with revulsion, shouted at me, Hey, Steve, do Koreans really eat dogs? (laughs) I didn't even know about this. So I said, no, Koreans don't eat dogs. And he goes, yeah, they do. (laughs) And I had to go home and I had to ask my mom, do Koreans eat dogs? Americans are equally horrified when they hear that Europeans eat horse meat. (laughs) It's actually a a very high-end steak in Europe. Why? Because in American culture, horses and dogs are in the non-food category, right? You just don't eat them. Cows? Kill them and eat them all, right? (laughs) I mean, they're just walking hamburger, right? (laughs) Um, And so interestingly, when God wants to teach the Apostle Peter about these walls of hostility that were torn down by Christ and the implications of that for the mission of the church, he chooses to use these food laws. In Acts chapter 10, verse 9 to 16, it says, About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven open and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. It's an interesting story, isn't it? Through this vision, God was telling Peter that these food laws were no longer to separate Jews from Gentiles. That now, because of what Jesus did, all food was declared clean. You can eat it all, Peter. And instead of celebrating and going, woohoo, bacon, you know, you see how repulsed and how disgusted Peter was at this vision. 
never God. I will never touch a pig. And so he has to be rebuked three times. Don't call unclean what God has called clean. I think Peter's reaction illustrates how even as Jesus has torn down these walls of hostility, there is still a heart work that needs to be done in our own hearts to accept this fellowship. Isn't there? Because the truth is, I don't think we all want those walls of hostility to be all torn down. It was interesting. This was a lesson that God was teaching me when I began my missionary work in Africa. Shortly after we arrived in Kenya, we had our first weekly worship service. And I was actually in charge of leading it for some strange reason as a brand new missionary. And so we're all seated around the circle. And it was insane, the diversity that was in that room. We had a Canadian We had a New Zealander, we had a German, we had an Australian, we had a handful of Kenyans, and then we had our family, Korean-Americans. And so I had my guitar, and I tried to lead us through some songs, and we found this old songbook in this unoccupied house in the mission station. So I grabbed about a dozen of them and distributed them, and we literally went through this 200-page songbook and could not find one song that we all knew together. The closest we got to was the song, Pass It On. Do you know that song, Pass It On? But only about a third of them knew that song. So we didn't sing that song. And so we ended up singing God is So Good like 50 times. (laughs) That was our worship. Because it was the only song we all knew together. Yeah, here was the thing was, I got home that day from that fellowship. And it made me feel so lonely inside. I felt so profoundly homesick when I came home from that prayer fellowship. And I thought, I so missed the worship that I had at my home church back in America. And I thought, how am I ever going to feel at home with these people? We can't even find one song we all know to sing together. But here was the amazing work that God did in my heart, is over those next five years on the mission field, God transformed us into a community centered around Christ and Christ alone. And I am not, this is not an exaggeration. Some of the moments of sweet fellowship I had with those brothers and sisters were so deep and so profound that even to this very day, I miss it. I miss sitting around with them and praying with them and singing songs together. Those Sunday night gatherings at that mission station were some of the most powerful moments of worship and Bible study that I have ever had. And I think what God was saying to me is, you know, your view of spirituality, your view of community, your view of what it means to be blessed is so narrow. And I am a God that is so much bigger than that. And you have to see who I am. Let me transition now to talking about the role of hospitality in accomplishing the work that God desires to do in our midst. One of the ways that God transforms a group of people into a community is through the ministry of hospitality. The ministry of hospitality. The word hospitality in the New Testament, in the Greek, is literally, it's philoxenia. Philoxenia, okay? 
Philia means love, and xenos means stranger. So in other words, the word hospitality literally means love of the stranger. Hospitality, in other words, is extending the benefits of community to someone who is normally outside of your social circles. Someone who you would normally not share fellowship with. And this stranger's theme is highlighted almost every time you see the occurrence of this word hospitality. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 1 to 2 says, Keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Do not forget, though, to show hospitality to strangers. For by so doing, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. In other words, the challenge is keep broadening that circle of friendship and intimacy to include others. It's interesting, though, that it applies this ministry of hospitality to even within the church. In Romans chapter 12, verse 13, it says this, Share with the Lord's people who are in need, practice hospitality. Now, here's the question. If the focus of hospitality is the stranger, then why is that a ministry that happens within the church, the community of the church? And I think the message of the New Testament writers is this. The truth is, even within a church body, there are some that you would regard as strangers. Some people to whom you do not extend a hand of fellowship or help in their time of need. And so it says, you know, you have these natural affinities even within your own body, even within your own congregation. And so it says, practice hospitality to the brothers and sisters in Christ who are even in your midst. You know, we spent five years on the mission field in this place called Kapsawar in the western side of Kenya. And our transition back in 2004 to that place was a really rough one. We had four little kids in tow. My wife was seven months pregnant. I had been to Africa a bunch of times, but it was brand new to our kids. The first day, our kids went outside. It was unfortunate because at that moment, or maybe it was actually fortunate, but almost every missionary family was on furlough at the time. So the station was kind of empty. And they hadn't seen missionary kids on the station for a while that were as young as our kids. So the African kids saw our kids as an oddity. And when our kids went outside to play, they got swarmed by these African kids. We're all tugging on their hair and even like scratching them <laughs> to see, touching their skin. Our kids freaked out and they ran inside crying. And we thought, you know, I, I as a father and as a husband, thought, have I made the biggest mistake of my life, you know? What am I doing to my children? But there was this one missionary who was still there, and her name was Arlene. She was a veteran missionary nurse from Canada, Calgary area. And that's a picture of her with our kids when they were much younger. And what she had done for us is our house that we lived in, when we arrived there, she put all of these cute little animal posters in our kids' bedrooms and glued them onto the wall. And then she had waiting for each child with their name written on it, a little plastic bucket. And it was filled with all of these little stickers and toys and trinkets, the kind of stuff that you have in like a Happy Meal. It's not really fancy stuff, but it was just such a nice gesture. So our kids had toys to play with on the first day that we arrived. 
And then that night, she invited us to her house and cooked us an amazing homemade meal that we all shared together. And we spent hours gathered around her fireplace in her living room just talking about Canada and Chicago and what our stories were. And by the time that our family went to bed that night, it was a dramatically different attitude. We felt like, you know what? I think this place could be home for us. And I think that is the power of hospitality. It is a hand of friendship to somebody who doesn't feel that they belong and says, you are welcomed here. This is home for you. So I want to ask you, who are the people who may feel like strangers at harvest? Which ethnic groups are likely to feel marginalized? Which age groups and life stages may feel like minorities, even neglected? You know, I want to say this. For some of you, harvest feels like your favorite pair of jeans. You know what I'm talking about? Every time you slip in, it just feels like part of your body. I mean, you don't even think about community because you just go, these are my people. And I'm going to guess there are some of you that are asking every week, can we make this our church? I don't know. Sermons are good, but I cringe every time we go into that post-service fellowship. I don't even know who to talk to. And no one talks to me. Who are the people that are struggling to make this a family, a home? And I want to challenge those of you who feel so comfortable in this church that you need to be taken out of your comfort zone a little and be stretched by the love of Christ to not just gather with the people that you do every week, but to love like Jesus loves. Romans chapter 12, 13, what we already looked at says this, share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Often when we, as Americans, think of hospitality, we just think about having someone over for dinner. That's what hospitality means to us. But actually in ancient times, life was so much harder. And hospitality often meant this person may not survive if we don't all rally around and help this person. There were no easy restaurants and hotels back then. We learned this idea of hospitality by living in Africa. When a visitor would come from Canada or America or something like that, they are not used to living in the bush. Our water came from the river, okay? Most nights there was no electricity. You would have to, it's like babysitting them. You have to cook their meals for them. You, You have to show them how to use the bathroom, how to use the shower and everything like that. These people would not survive a day without our help as missionaries. And I think that's a bit of the picture that we see here is it's not just about having people over for dinner, although that's a great start, but it's talking about extending a hand of fellowship that means when you are in need, I will be there for you. When you can't pay your mortgage, let me help you with that. And let's be honest here, that takes us to an incredibly uncomfortable place for most of us. Truth is, I think we all have a really small, cozy circle that we would do that kind of love to. 
But I think the challenge here is, can you extend that circle to people that would not naturally fit in that circle? So what does it mean to practice hospitality? If we keep in mind that the goal of hospitality is to offer the experience of community to those who would not normally receive it from you, then I think we can be creative in all the different ways that we could express it here in the life of Harvest. I think as a start, you can invite somebody over to your house for a meal because there's something so personal and touching about letting someone into your house, right? And this is what I've discovered in my own church at ICC. is the one of the things that I realized why a lot of ICC members hesitate to even start there is because they're insecure about their cooking, okay? That's what I learned is in our day, nobody cooks anymore. And especially on the wife, it's really hard going, it's going to reflect so poorly on me if I make that rock-hard pork chop that not even my kids will eat and I serve it to my friend. And what I've told my own church is, don't, then take that off the table. Just cater, Just cater some food. I go, no, no, it's so rude. It's okay. Then just say, be honest and go, I don't cook. <laughs> Heat up a Costco lasagna. It's okay, you know? And then sit around that table and share your stories with one another. It's okay. Take cooking off of that pressure. Maybe it's something as simple as greeting a new face every Sunday when you come here to Harvest. If you see somebody lost, help them. Don't just point them to the registration table to register their kids. Walk them there and register for them. And then walk them back here and say, can I sit with you? I know probably some families here vacation together every year. And one of the ways I've challenged my own church, and they've really risen to this challenge, which I'm so thankful that I said, why don't you invite one new family that probably doesn't vacation with anyone else to come join you on that group vacation and go vacation together? There's something so powerful about spending three, four days together in a place, renting a house and cooking meals together and sharing fellowship. Like, I don't know. There's a hundred ways that we can do this. I just want to invite you to consider what you could do to be the arms, the hands, the feet of Jesus in bringing about the kind of unity and community he wills for your church. First Peter chapter four, verse eight to nine says this, above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another and then here's the key, without grumbling. Okay? Um, I think as Pastor Jared introduced me, I, I, I am relentless about trying to get to the issue of the heart because truth is, everything I just shared, you can kind of power through for a season and then you're going to burn out and you're going to hate me for it. I am not trying to ask you to mimic the ethics of the kingdom of God. I am asking you to embody it and that is not something you can do through willpower. It has to be the work of God in your heart to soften that hardened heart that is so used to just loving the people you want to love in your life and seeing the stranger as my friend. Otherwise, you can't do it without grumbling. This has to be, first, the change of heart. 
Because there are people that you will do this for. You will lay down your life for a small, cozy circle. But that's not what hospitality is. That's not what the body of Christ is. And the truth is, for a season you might help someone out, but when that person is not in your inner circle, it grates on you, right? What's wrong with this guy? I mean, I've been driving him here and there and helping him do this and that, but I don't think the guy gets it. And I've been doing this for like three months. And I'm sick of it. <laughs> Let him find a new friend at Harvest. Because I think I've, I'm going to punch out my card, you know? I've done enough. Then the truth is, <laughs> they're not really in your circle, are they? To do this kind of supernatural ministry of hospitality, it has to be the Holy Spirit doing a work in your heart to love that person. Not just for a season, but for the life of your involvement in this church. And it is inconvenient. That's why we don't want to enlarge that circle. It's good to have five or six really tight families, right? That you would do that for. Because the truth is, it is exhausting. But again, if God can do that work in our heart, he can give us the strength, the love that we lack to be able to carry out this ministry. John Piper says this, The most natural thing in the world is to neglect hospitality. It is the path of least resistance. All we have to do is yield to the natural gravity of our self-centered life. And the result will be a life so full of self that there is no room for hospitality. We will forget about it and we will neglect it. When we practice hospitality, here's what happens. We experience the refreshing joy of becoming conduits of God's hospitality rather than being self-decaying cul-de-sacs. The joy of receiving God's hospitality decays and dies if it doesn't flourish in our own hospitality to others. Amen? I love that phrase he used, self-decaying cul-de-sac. The reason why it struck such a chord with me is because I grew up in a cul-de-sac. Now, this is not my cul-de-sac. It's, it's a little more upwardly mobile than the, the cul-de-sac I grew up in. I could, it's just a stock image, but it will do. I loved growing up in a cul-de-sac. It's actually, if you've never grown up in one, it's actually very interesting because the th- the, what's so unique about a cul-de-sac is there's no through traffic, and it makes all the difference in the world. Any strange car that shows up in the cul-de-sac, everyone stares out the window. Who's that? <laughs> you know? They don't belong here. And it was great because there's no through traffic kids riding their bicycle outside. The little toddlers playing in the streets. You knew everyone. There was the Fungs. There was the Paderas. There was the Smiths. You knew, you knew everyone on the block. But it was a very insular, closed community. Anyone who pulled in there didn't belong. And they weren't welcome. And I wonder... I wonder if some of you have painted yourself into a cul-de-sac in this church. A cozy little inner circle of family and friends. And even if you don't articulate it, there is this sign that you wear on your face that says, do not enter, not welcome. For the stranger, for the person that doesn't have a house on that street. How, let me just close with this, and then I'll wrap it up here. How do we become this kind of generous person? 
that can show hospitality toward others. I think the only way that happens if we understand the hospitality that God showed toward us. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 10. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The gospel says of each one of us, you know, none of you belonged. That's the truth. None of you had a right to be part of the family of God. But in his mercy, he welcomed you in. And if you could for a moment grasp the hospitality God extended to you, how could you withhold it from your brother, your sister in Christ? Let's pray. As we spend a little time in response and prayer and in singing, I just want to challenge you to think about your own attitude toward others. And I want to challenge you that some, for some of you, I want to say your heart is so small. Your heart is so small. You're so satisfied with this cozy little life that you've built for yourself. And you claim all the mercies of God and the love of God, but it's all so self-serving. It's my little piece of the kingdom. And that's what harvest represents for you. And then I want to challenge you that there are some people that have tried to make a go at it here, and they're hanging on by a thread, and they're saying, man, you know, it's not, it's a struggle for me, you know, being in this Asian American church or something like that and going, and all my friends are even going like, why are you at that church, you know? And stuff, and, but you're going, but I find something vital here that I love, that nourishes me. And I want to say that when God comes and the Spirit of God does a work in a community, it's something very powerful and transformative that suddenly gives us entirely new eyes to see each other. And I don't see race. I don't see skin color. I don't see education level. All I see is brother and sister in Christ. God has shown me mercy. And man, I have such a cozy and easy life, but I'm going to be willing to be stretched a little and to enlarge my circle and say, hey, you know, a bunch of us are going out to lunch after church, and it's usually our little, you know, breakfast club here. Why don't you come and join us? We'd love to have you there. Is the love of God real here at Harvest? Or could a sociologist spend some time with you and go, I could explain everything that happens here on human terms. Is this a supernatural community empowered by the work of God in our midst? For those of you who are practicing this hospitality, praise God for you. And I want to encourage you to keep doing that. But for those of you who may have struggled with this, I don't want to guilt you into this. Maybe what I'm asking you just right now to do is just spend some moment in prayer and say, God, turn my eyes to the cross and help me to see how much you love me. That out of the overflow of that gratitude and the joy that I feel, that joy will abound in extending the hand of friendship to somebody that I just don't know that well in this church and saying, you are welcome here. You are loved here. Would you just pray that for a few minutes in our worship team? We'll come and close this in a time of worship. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, 
check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.